We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello, Courtney, and welcome back. Hi, Craig. How are you going? Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, so this week, we're lucky enough to sit down with a guy called Josh Bamford. Yeah. And what can you tell me about Josh? So... He's actually one of my um, brother's old friends and I did some stalking of him on Facebook and realised that he's in um, some kind of interesting public health area. But that's also kind of not public health, so I thought it'd be pretty interesting to talk to. And basically his area of research is uh, within the field of psychology, but it's more focused on um, music and dance and how... If you start singing or dancing with people, that it can increase your social bondness um, with that group. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting, and that we should have a chat with him. Yeah, yeah. and and you mentioned that he his parents are in the science communication world as well. That's right. So. Um, I remember one of their names, Mandy Bamford. Uh, she's lovely. She's yeah, one of the big science communication people here in Perth, Western Australia, um, and does a lot of work with Australian uh, wildlife and promotion of that. Um, yeah, really, really cool people. Uh, yeah, very good at their science communication skills. Interesting, yeah. And, and Josh clearly has inherited those skills because he was a pretty strong communicator from yeah, our chat. Definitely, yeah, definitely, yeah. Lots of things that he explained that were just like... You could understand very easily. It was great. <laughs> yeah, that was a really fascinating talk, I thought. Yeah. Um, but before we get into that, a little bit of science communication of your own. That's you, right. You were recently in the three-minute thesis competition, weren't you? Yeah. So, uh, Craig, you thought it was a good idea for me to self-promote here. So, I just did the uh, three-minute thesis competition for UWA and through that competition, I have uh, now been a part of the Matariki Network three-minute international competition. So there's four universities involved with that. Um, and as we are recording, the voting process is happening, but I'm not sure whether this uh, will be released by the time uh, voting closes, I guess. We might try and squeeze it out. We'll see how we go. Yeah, we'll see how we go. Yeah. Um, the date for that is the 25th. 25th so we'll, yeah. we'll see. You, you'll know yeah. when you're listening to Ho- it. Hopefully we'll get this out maybe a couple of days before that. Yeah, but um, if you do want to have a listen to my video, it's on two different YouTube uh, accounts. So you can look up the Matariki Network, um, Matariki spelled M-A-T-A-R-I-K-I, um, and it's also on the UWA YouTube uh, account as well. So if you just like look up my name, Courtney Weber, mm-hmm. uh, Three Minute Thesis, you'll probably find it. And it's all about my thesis, um, explained right. hopefully in a pretty fun way. Yeah, it's definitely entertaining. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. All right. We should probably get onto the conversation with Josh Bamford now. So have yeah. a listen, enjoy, and I hope you learn something. And we'll speak to you after. <laughs> Yeah, so welcome Josh Bamford to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have you on. Um, so I don't think there's going to be too many people listening who know who you are. So <laughs> do you want to give us a bit of background as to, um, I guess, your education and, and what you're up to at the moment? Oh, sure. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm stuck here in Perth, mm-hmm. um, uh, 
yeah, pretty happy to be so, though. Um, I'm usually based at Oxford, um, the university there, in the uh, Institute of Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology. Uh, and I'm doing a PhD, or actually we call it a DPhil in Oxford, just because we like to be different. Um, I think it's because Cambridge have PhDs and therefore Oxford can't have PhDs. Of course, Something yeah. Like that. yeah. Um, yep. But I am originally from Perth, though. Okay. Um, and so I, I did my undergraduate uh, at UWA here. Uh, so it is really nice to be kind of back on campus. It's such a beautiful place. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and I, I studied classical music. Um, so mm-hmm. I studied to be an opera singer and then worked at the West Australian Opera Company for a, a few years mm-hmm. um, before getting really interested in psychology um, and kind of the psychology of music. So I, I kind of had, I always kind of had a foot in the science camp as well and was delighted to find that you could sort of put these two things together and look at, you know, the science of art. Yeah. Um, and that then took me to Finland. Because, um, <laughs> okay. of course, yeah. Big did. jump, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think I was just sick of warm weather. So, uh, you know, of course, like, yeah, I had to I, go to the cold. W- and... wanted, to, wanted to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, and uh, how, how long were you in Finland for? I was there for two years okay. um, doing a master's uh, in music psychology. They had a specialized lab that, that looked at some of these questions of kind of why people do music, how mm-hmm. they do it, you know, how our auditory perception works, okay. um, what kind of emotional effects music has for us, these sorts of things. Fascinating yeah. stuff. And, and your interest is, is on how people experience those things and how that changes kind of uh, their lives and their interactions with others. Is that right? Exactly, yeah. Um, I guess I, I got really interested, like, coming from a background as a professional singer, I got really interested in, like, the people behind the music. And also this this funny thing that we have in particularly Australian society, but I think in, in most Western cultures, that music is something that professionals do um, mm. as opposed to kind of, you know, just something that people do. Yeah. Um, you know, here, like, you know, you go see the opera, the, the performers are up on stage, they've been training for years, it's kind of a specialist thing. Uh, and a lot of people, when you ask them, like, oh, you know, do you sing? They'll say, no, no, I'm tone deaf, I can't sing, yeah. um, right. which, is, which is rubbish. Like, most people can sing, in fact. And if you look, um, and this is where I got interested in kind of the anthropology of music a bit more, um, uh, where I am now, because if you look across societies, you know, there are so many cultures in the world where singing is just kind of part of you know what you do in day-to-day life singing and dancing mm-hmm. um, there's many cultures where you know their kind of rituals are based on singing and dancing together um, and this led to a, you know a, a whole lot of research looking at what f- social function music and dance tend to serve um, because oftentimes it is these kind of group experiences where you're you know, sing- you know sitting around a campfire you know, singing and dancing, mm-hmm. uh, and it creates a sense of social bonding with people in the group. So I got really interested in kind of that effect uh, and the, the effect of participatory music and dance behaviour. Mm-hmm. So during your career as an opera singer, was it just like, was there one moment that really you went, oh, I need to study this and how this works, like with people in general, or was it kind of that interest built over time? Oh, it was did, there any like aha moment, I guess? <laughs> it, it, did, it did kind of build over time, but there were a few key moments. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have to say one of, one of the things that really, um, that really got me interested in studying kind of the doing of music rather than just performing it myself was working backstage at a lot of theatres um, and working with musicians who were so so kind of highly strung mm-hmm. and not really enjoying what they were doing. Oh, um, okay. Which, yeah. I, yeah, which I thought was really interesting because they've obviously chosen to do this and they do it professionally. Um, 
but you know somehow doing it professionally seems to suck all the fun out of it. <laughs> so I guess that, that kind of turned me off you know, being a professional musician um, and got me really interested in kind of well, why do people do this and what they get out of it. Um, but there was a bit of a turning point uh, actually taking part in a volunteer project here at UWA, um, working with Jane Davidson, who was um, a music psychologist here, uh, now moved to Melbourne. Um, but she was doing some work with the Act Belong Commit um, it's a project yeah. mm-hmm. uh, running community choirs um, and community music, um, mm-hmm. sort of kind of like group music therapy sessions, I guess. Uh, so I was kind of volunteering, helping out with some of these, what were essentially jam sessions where yeah. they would get a bunch of people together and sing you know, or play instruments often, you know, not to a particularly high standard, but gee, everyone was having fun. Um, so much more fun than the professional musicians <laughs> who I worked with. Yeah. And I thought, wow, there's something in this. Like, these guys are having a great time. Mm. Uh, and it, they clearly got something out of it. And there were, you know, some of the people we were working with, um, you know, we, we didn't really know what their background was necessarily, um, often came from quite insecure housing situations um, or may have had mental mental illnesses of some sort. We never really knew. We were just there to sing with them. Um, but you know, it was such a such a nice experience. You got the feeling that people really got something out of this. Mm. Mm. So music can be quite therapeutic, can't it? And I know there's been a bit of work done on people with degenerative kind of neuropsychiatric problems, oh, yeah. you know, like Alzheimer's and whatnot. Mm. Uh, and also in the prison system here, one of our colleagues, a couple of our colleagues, Karen, who was on the podcast recently, Karen Martin and um, Lisa Wood, have uh, studied the impact of a program called Drumbeat, I think on domestic violence yep. or yeah, sort of violence within domestic relationships within the prison population, as a as a way of helping people express their emotions more healthily. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's sort of starting to get, gain a bit of traction, and I guess it's probably been going on for a few years, but it's starting to become a bit more known in in the sort of mainstream. That's fantastic. I hadn't heard about that project in particular. I think, I think it is starting to catch on. And I think Australia is a little bit behind the curve in some ways. Uh, you know, part of the reason I went to Finland was that it, sort of music psychology and music therapy is something that the Nordic countries have been sort of right behind for, for decades now, really. Um, they have quite an established music therapy program, training therapists to work with music. Um, the UK also is, you know, is so going pretty well in that regard. There's um, the Nordoff Robbins uh, organisation, which kind of um, you know works works through music therapy. Um, yeah, there's one, one of my um, one of my other supervisors while I was in Finland, um, uh, Birgitta Berger. Uh, she was doing some work with drumming actually, mm-hmm. um, but more from a sort of neurologic music therapy perspective. We have these two types of music therapy. Um, one one uh, which is psychodynamic music therapy uses kind of music as a medium for the therapist and their client to kind of build a relationship and sort of work through their feelings and emotions um, and sort of interact as, as this sort of communicative medium. Uh, so, yeah, the, these kinds of ideas where you're you know, releasing your emotions through drumming, uh, I guess, would be more of a psychodynamic approach. Yeah, I think that was what the idea was behind this drum beat project as well. Yeah, it was like a drumming circle. So yeah. it's a group of them. I, yeah, I think it was to like get out that emotion. Playing the drums, yeah. yeah. And it's possibly like communicating via your mechanical kind of yeah. drumming action or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is, I mean, it's, yeah. quite, it's quite physical. And we, we experience emotions physically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's thought that this is kind of maybe how music helps to, you know, engage our uh, sort of emotion systems is because mm-hmm. it is so physical and we kind of feel it in our body. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you can't, you can't make music without moving. 
Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, you, like yeah. Whether, you, whether you're drumming, whether you're playing the violin, even when you're singing, you're moving your vocal folds mm-hmm. um, and you're often kind of stepping in time to the beat or swaying hand a bit. Actions. Hand, always hand yeah, actions. Your hand's yeah. actions, you <laughs> yeah. know. Even if you're just listening to music, you're often tapping along mm-hmm. whether you're aware of it or not. Um, so it does engage our motor systems, which in turn, you know, may engage our emotional systems. Yeah. Um, but it, it, as to go back to types of music mm-hmm. therapy, the mm-hmm. other type is a, um, is what we call neurologic music therapy, which often is um, is much more targeted in what it's aiming to achieve and much more neurological. Um, so this this project that my former supervisor was working on was a similarly a drumming project it was actually looking at stroke rehabilitation. Oh, okay. Um, for, for people who had um, sort of acquired um, motor deficits uh, due to stroke. And uh, she was using um, this drumming paradigm uh, to help people regain their fine motor control um, be- just because it's kind, of, it's kind of more fun and motivating than some of the other methods of rehabilitating after stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of, a lot of physiotherapy um, is not particularly fun. Uh, if, if you're trying to regain basic motor control, um, it's very long and quite intensive. Um, but if you kind of frame it as, you know, we're going to learn, you know, some cool rhythms on the drums um, and, you know, incidentally, we're also going to regain some motor function through that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, music is then sort of a gateway to open up some neural pathways okay. that might otherwise be quite difficult. Yeah. So people who've lost that sort of ability to move, um, the brain can be retrained to go through a different neurological pathway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. through music um, or through drumming or yeah, dancing exactly. maybe. I don't Dance, know. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think some, some of the... Some of the best results uh, coming out of this area is probably for Parkinson's, actually. Okay. Um, there's a Dance for Parkinson's project in the mm-hmm. UK, which is really fun. Mm. Um, and they, you know, they've found that actually one of the problems in Parkinson's uh, is that people, um, it seems to have kind of rhythmic deficits associated with it. It's like the timing of walking doesn't work properly. And maybe this is something to do with, you know, timekeepers deep in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you kind of provide a, a sort of musical stimulus um, you know, externally that has a consistent beat to it, that can actually help people to move more fluidly because you can so start cool. stepping in time to the beat and it reorganizes parts of the brain that have perhaps become disorganized because of the disease. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's now these Dance for Parkinson's projects where you find, you know, even if people struggle to walk um, in a fluid way, uh, you can get them to dance. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so how does your research kind of fit into this whole music and therapy idea. Sure. I guess I, I should be clear that what, what I'm doing at the moment is kind of not applied music therapy in any way. Yeah. What I'm doing is kind of really basic research, trying to understand the mechanisms. Um, uh, so I, I mentioned the kind of, you know, music and, and social bonding before mm-hmm. and this idea that when we're kind of, you know, singing and dancing or drumming in a group, uh, that tends to make us feel more affiliated to the other people in the group. Um, and, you know, this seems to have been used across cultures sort of throughout human history, um, so we think. What's not very well understood is why this happens. Like, why specifically should, you know, singing with a bunch of people make you like them more? Um, (laughs) And, you know, and that's important because, you know, we're at a point where people are starting to, you know, prescribe music as an intervention um, through music therapy. Um, And I'm sort of excited to note that in, um, in the UK, like doctors have started recommending you know, engagement with arts and culture as a um, you know as a as a sort of prescription for for certain things, um, and you know 
in the UK they have a minister for loneliness. Yeah. Uh, so it, <laughs> what a title! It's, it's yeah. just brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. But they're, they're taking this quite seriously that you know people are feeling a lack of social connection, yeah. and we need ways to make people feel more socially connected because there are you know real health outcomes for that. Um, but as for any intervention, you need to understand the mechanisms. You can't prescribe drugs if you don't understand, you know, why they work and what the active ingredient mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. So I guess my my work comes in trying to understand what the mechanisms are behind this music and social bonding effect and what the active ingredient is. Um, so actually, actually, what I'm doing is is doing some very simple uh, yeah. studies where people are tapping along with some videos or you know observing stimuli that are either synchronized or non-synchronized. Um, we suspect that it may be the kind of interpersonal synchrony. It's like the doing stuff mm. in time with people mm-hmm. that is that active ingredient. Um, and that it may not be specific to music as such, although music and dance are great examples of where you require synchrony to kind of maintain the interaction. Um, but other people in our lab have also been looking at rowing uh, and people running side by side with each other. Oh, okay. So a range of different tasks where people are having to synchronize or coordinate actions with each other and the resultants of social effects of this. Yeah, okay. okay. Are there any other kind of like theories that could potentially be an alternate answer, I guess, other than this synchrony? Um, there's oh, there's, <laughs> there's many competing um, yeah. <laughs> kind of explanations for why synchrony might have this effect. Okay, um, yeah. So it, it seems to be, I mean, that the sort of this sort of, you know, synchrony bonding effect, we call it, um, you know, is, is an observation, I guess. You know, there's been lots of studies now that have looked at, um, you know, getting people to do very basic things like tapping and isochronous rhythm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just, just a, a standard kind of, yep. you know, simple, straightforward beat, doesn't change, no rhythmic structure to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what that'll sound like. Yeah, <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> a bit like a metronome, probably. A bit like yeah. a metronome, yeah. If you like tap along to a metronome with another person, you tend to like them a bit, bit more afterwards. Yeah. You tend to be more likely to want to cooperate with them. So that, that's an observation that's been made through scientific study. Mm-hmm. Um, what the, the jury is very much still out as to you know why this occurs. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And there's competing hypotheses as you know. Some people have suggested it's about the kind of um, you know, achievement of shared goals. Um, so a, a sort of more higher level psychological explanation that, you know, we managed to collaborate on this shared task. Therefore, I'm more likely to want to collaborate with you in the future. Um, some people have suggested a much more sort of low level perceptual um, uh uh, explanation that you sort of perceive someone else moving in time with you and then you kind of group them in with yourself. So you perceive mm-hmm. them as being part of you. Um, so it could be happening at a lower level of um, sort of perceptual grouping. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there's a few competing hypotheses. Um, uh, another, another one uh, is looking more at uh, it actually suggests that the um, this bonding effect may be a byproduct of another effect. Oh, and okay. That, that actually, yeah, this is really it gets really technical. Yeah. Doesn't it? <laughs> and and pe- people spend a lot of you know ink and time, um, you know, debating these theories. Mm. Um, but yeah, th- this this one is that um, it's really about signaling a coalition to other people. Um, this comes out of sort of animal signaling kind of theories, I guess. Um, you know, if we're kind of moving in time with each other, other people will perceive us as being in some kind of alliance, and we get a benefit from that um, in terms of you know being a sort of more dominant group. If we have more people, uh, that's so almost we can... like schools of fish all move together, so they're more Ex- aligned. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. it's like schools of fish, flocks of birds. Yeah. You know, you get you get a kind of protective of 
elements to being part of a school. Um, it would also be kind of really weird just walking up to like a group of people that are all clapping in time, right? If they were all just doing that, you'd be like, I'm going to avoid you because I'm not in time with you. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and like, you know, yeah, I guess the dark side of this is that like militaries know this. Oh, um, yeah, of course. Yeah, and another great example of where you see a lot of synchrony between large groups of people is in military contexts yeah. um, where people are marching together, um, often to a drumbeat, you know, with army bands mm, accompanying. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. that's really interesting. So then maybe the bonding effects come sort of after that and that you feel good about being part of the group because the group gives you this benefit. So I, it, yeah, there's different ways you can construct it. And um, there was a couple of papers that just came out recently in um, the journal uh, Brain and Behavioral Sciences. Um, usually they have one target article and then a bunch of commentary that comes after it. Uh, this is an, an unusual issue in that they've got two target articles, mm-hmm. both presenting these contrasting hypotheses, oh, okay. uh, explaining this music and bonding um, effect mm. and the evolutionary functions of music. Um so- and it's, it's been quite heated, I understand, between the authors. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's really, really exciting, you know, science in process yeah. um, that people are so fired up about these theories. It's great. I wonder if that effect explains for anyone out there who's ever been to a music festival and made friends with a complete stranger to their favourite artist or their favourite DJ or whatever it might be, you know. Putting, putting their other um, recreational activities to one side, uh, whether the music is the is the main reason that people might bond over I a mean, shared experience. I mean, it kind experience. of makes sense, doesn't it? Because, yeah. yeah, it's that shared experience. You're kind of all mingling and, and dancing and, yeah. 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 yeah, it is. I mean, it's a quite a powerful shared experience, actually. Mm. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, we, we often like people who are kind of like ourselves and we there's lots of things we use as social tags, um, you know, if you – like speak the same language, that's a good start, I guess. Or mm-hmm. even if you have the same like accent or dialect, um, mm-hmm. you know, or even like if you see someone wearing a T-shirt that you like that says something about, you know, what their preferences might be, you know, if it's got a band that they're into, you see that, you know, on, on their shirt. I'm very conscious I'm wearing a Beatles, <laughs> like a, a Beatles T-shirt at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope you guys like the Beatles because yep, uh-huh. otherwise yeah. it might be like, you know, you might be biased <laughs> against me. Don't, yeah. No, that's um, why we're still talking to you. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Good. Um, yeah, so we use all sorts of things as, as kind of markers of whether you might get on with this person. Yep. But a shared musical experience does seem to be very powerful. Mm. Um, and there's one of my colleagues at Oxford um, uh, wrote a paper couple of years ago, uh, which she titled The Icebreaker Effect, because okay. um, she was comparing different um, different sort of artistic activities. Um, one was a choir, uh, one was a, um, an art class, one was a, um, I think it was a poetry reading group, um, and found that, you know, by the end of the, the period of time in which they were taking part in this class, I think it was, you know, eight weeks or something, uh, you know, everyone kind of liked each other more at the end of this, this shared experience. Um, but people kind of people started to like each other a lot faster in the choir, um, which was interesting. And mm-hmm. she she sort of concluded that perhaps this is this you know synchronous experience of having to coordinate with each other in the choir that kind of reaches that social bonding effect faster than any other type of shared experience. Mm-hmm. There is something more intense about a shared musical experience that yeah. helps to bond faster than others. Mm. Are there any um, suggestions as to I guess, what m- makes that more intense? Because, like, just thinking off the cuff, one thing that um, I guess could make it more intense is 
fear of embarrassment. So, you know, I don't like singing in front of people. I'm not going to do that. But if I had to, I'd have to get over that quicker. And then depending on people's reactions, I'd be more likely to like them because they haven't rejected me um, because my singing is not the best or whatever. So are there any ideas about why that's more intense and, and why it becomes faster? Um, I guess it com- comes back to this idea. There's like many different ways in which it could be. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I you can I, say I don't know. That's I don't really fine. know. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I don't really know. And like, I, I mean, you know, the the kind of stuff we're doing is obviously quite controlled and reduced. And there's so many factors that can play into this in a real world example. Um, so yeah, I mean, that that idea of you know your kind of confidence before going up on stage and singing, and just the context in which you're doing it, and who's in the audience, and there's so many factors there that could change this from being quite a positive experience to being quite a negative experience. Um, mm. And so it's kind of hard to know, like, which of those might contribute more for that individual. Um, mm. I mean, I, I suspect there is something um, about kind of singing with people um, that is quite powerful or dancing with people, you know, um, possibly because of this basic um, perceptual grouping idea that I mentioned before. Um, it's pro- probably more the the kind of theory I would subscribe to at this point. Um, uh but you know, testing is ongoing. Yeah, I <laughs> can't say we have like lots of evidence to back that up yet. Yeah, I wonder what role things like hormones play in this as well, because mm. obviously adrenaline and and serotonin and well, no, I don't think serotonin is a hormone, but these substances do change people's mood and perceptions and and whatnot. And yeah, potentially they would be associated with performing. Like I imagine adrenaline probably plays a huge part in some people being at their kind of peak performance state and others being crippled with fear and not being able to move because there's too much adrenaline, um, you know, which is being a stage fright and that sort of thing. So I wonder if, if those things all sort of play a part alongside these other sort of psychological kind of effects as well. Yeah, it could. Um, I, you know, I, I do wonder whether the, the adrenaline boost is probably a real motivator for, for people who really do want to work as performers and who do perform a lot. Um, I certainly found this just sort of, from personal experience, it is a bit of an adrenaline rush getting mm-hmm. up on stage. Um, mm. And, you know, it's, it's too much of an adrenaline rush for a lot of people. Um, and yeah. fe- fear of kind of performing and public mm. embarrassment and things is a, a very common fear. Mm. Um, you know, people don't like public speaking or performing in public um, unless, unless you're kind of quite practiced at it often. Yep. Um, but, you know, that's, that's definitely how I get my kicks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it d- yeah. depends on the person, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, your, your training's as an opera singer originally, is that yeah. right? And did you ever sing as a soloist or were you mostly in a group or...? Um, I did both. Yeah, I yeah. Mo- mostly worked, uh, you know, as part of a chorus. So okay. I was I was working with the West Australian Opera Chorus um, mostly, but I had a couple of minor roles, um, mm-hmm. uh, both at UWA and with a little independent company called Opera Box. Okay. Um, uh, and yeah, it's you know it's great fun, but it really does put you on the spot. Yeah. Um, which you know, and yeah, you know, I, I do get a kick out of that. Um, yeah. I think it's quite fun. Yeah. yeah. I'm not not a big fan of bungee jumping or you know skydiving, but getting up on stage and singing that's that's where I get my kicks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's not for everyone. Yeah. Um, but I, I suspect that when when people are kind of taking part in a group activity, though, I mean, like going to a rock concert, you know, you're not kind of on stage mm. if you're in the audience. So there's it's probably not the adrenaline necessarily from from performing that's that's kind of having the effect yeah. when you're at a rock concert and feeling bonded with all the other people there. Um, 
could be like dopamine or serotonin but, or something. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. People have looked a lot at um at the endorphin system and at oxytocin. Yep. Uh, those are kind of the big ones. That's and the there love, is the love drug the, the, or whatever. The, yeah, the, the love hormone, yeah. Love yeah. Hormone. like the cuddle yeah. hormone, yeah. as yeah, some yeah, people right. call it. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I mean, there's a lot of debate about what those actually do. Um, and like, I'm not an endocrinologist. Um, but um, but from talking to endocrino- endocrinologists, I think you know they they cringe a little bit at the cuddle hormone um, <laughs> thing because it's not necessarily you know it's not necessarily just about kind of feeling close to people. Mm-hmm. Um, for, from my understanding, oxytocin is seems to be involved in group formation, um, and you know group formation it involves both kind of defining your in group but also your out group. So there are kind of you know there are dark sides to oxytocin as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, in that you know when people are higher in oxytocin, they often become more prejudiced against people who are outside of their group. Okay. So, but I, we don't really understand very well what these do and exactly how they interact with each other. Yeah. Um, so there's some researchers who've like focused on you know endorphin rewards as you know as part of musical activity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know you take part in a singing task and then you get a boost of endorphins uh, and that feels good and therefore you like it. Um, other people have ignored endorphins entirely and looked at you know, oxytocin after taking part in a group singing activity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot more work to kind of combine those and look at how these interact with each okay. other. And just the nuts and bolts of testing all that, is it blood tests or how, how do they measure those changes? We're <laughs> <laughs> testing your knowledge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so oxytocin, I think, I think you can do it with a cheek swab, actually. Yeah. Um, and you can also induce oxytocin with a nasal spray. Um, oh. So you can experimentally manipulate people's oxytocin okay. levels, It's so it's thought. Yeah. Um, uh, endorphins are trickier because they don't cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, and so if you want to know what the endorphin system in the brain is doing, uh, the only way to really do that is with a spinal tap. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. It's kind of too invasive for like most The tasks. ethics behind that would be uh, very yeah, tough. Most, most ethics <laughs> yeah. committees as well probably. Um, yeah. So what, what people do are they use proxy measurements, um, yep. uh, looking at pain thresholds mostly um, because the, the other thing the endorphin system does, um, I, I guess a little bit like the, you know, a, bit, a little bit like adrenaline, mm-hmm. um, is that it can increase your pain thresholds and sort of improve your, your physical output. Um, so people do things like wall sit tasks um, okay. where you're kind of leaning against a wall having to maintain that posture for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And they tend to find that, you know, after engaging in an activity that boosts your endorphin response, um, they people are able to sit for longer doing a wall okay. sit task. Yeah. That, that, you know, for instance, I mean, there's problems with those kinds of proxy measurements because obviously mm-hmm. you're not measuring the the hormone directly, um, and mm-hmm. so there's you know there's issues with that and what conclusions you can really draw <laughs> from you know mm-hmm. how how long someone can sit against a wall after they sing. Yeah, um, <laughs> well, I imagine there's there's sort of uh, subjective differences as well where some people might not be that stimulated by music, but maybe more so by a different activity, and so they might have a different response. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And for all sorts of reasons, depending on yeah their prior experience. Yeah. And uh, one thing you hear a lot is that you know people did primary school music and they were told that they're tone deaf by their teacher, mm-hmm. um, and then they just didn't want to hear anything about music ever again, mm-hmm. um, which is like tragic uh, for me for me to hear that as a musician yep. that people get switched off um, music like that. But yeah. it certainly happens. So prior experience can play into it. Yeah. So your research in Finland. Um, what what exactly did you research in those two years, and I guess what were your outcomes of that? Okay, well, so that, that's what got me into this, like looking at this like synchrony effect, particularly. Yeah. Um, so I, I was 
um, yeah, I, I was using a silent disco um, as oh, my research cool. yeah. uh, sort of like space. Um, and I got the idea actually from going to the, um, the Fringe Festival here in Perth and going to the silent disco that they run in the Urban Orchard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they, they still do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they definitely they run it do. In both the Urban Orchard and the Pleasure Garden as well. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's cool. quite popular. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I went to that and I thought, wow, this is a really weird experience because you know, you're here in this space and you're dancing, but then there's other people dancing around you who are not necessarily listening to the same music mm-hmm. as you. Yeah. Um, there's also people outside the space who are watching these people dancing to no music, which is kind of weird, I guess because we've been socially conditioned to think that dance has to go with music. Yeah. Um, but I, th- I thought, look, as a scientist, like this is a really interesting kind of research paradigm because you can manipulate like what music people are listening to while they're still sharing a dance space. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's um, going back to like different theories of why people you know do sing and dance together. One of those theories is that there's like a collective effervescence kind of effect that you know just kind of sharing a space with people where you're doing something that is kind of exciting and uplifting and maybe has these, you know, hormones involved, um, you know, that makes you feel good and then you just feel good about the other people there. Um, So I was kind of interested in whether, you know, just sharing a dance space with people, you know, has these positive effects or whether actually, like, you need to be dancing in time with them. Right. Um, And so whether timing was important and this kind of interpersonal synchrony. Um, So I, I got people into a motion capture lab and set up a artificial kind of silent disco space <laughs> in the lab yeah. uh, so I could record their movements quite precisely. We had an optical motion capture system that was owned by the music department at my at the University of Uvascular in Finland. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I got people with some silent disco headphones, um, played them some music. Uh, they either – it was always the same track, um, mm-hmm. but I'd manipulated the timing so they may have got – a little bit offset so that one person was always hearing the music about a quarter of a beat behind the other person uh, or um, I tempo stretched one of the tracks so that one person was dancing to a slightly slower or slightly faster tempo to the Mm -hmm. other. Um, And, you know, so I I did this, you know, a bunch of different conditions. Uh, Obviously, they also, there was an in-sync condition as Mm -hmm. well Um, and then looked at the social outcomes of Mm -hmm. this and looked at how they moved in the space. And um, sure enough, I found that people were pretty, like were happier with the interaction they'd had if um, they were in time with each other. Yeah. Um, and they also they also tended to look towards each other more when looking at the the movement data. Oh, okay. Yeah. And possibly were a little bit closer to each other. That was <laughs> yeah inconclusive. We were still debating. Like I'm still looking at that data. We're still writing up that study. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, yeah, there's different ways you can look at it and what kind of movement features might be relevant. Yeah, okay. Um, but and yeah, how many fun. people did you have in the lab? Because, like, I can imagine if it's just, like, two or three people, very awkward, right? <laughs> so, yeah, how, how many people did uh, we, you We just had two. Okay, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> two at a yeah. time. Two, yeah. two at a time, yeah. yeah. yeah awesome. um, there were some, some technical limitations with the motion capture because oh, if you have too many okay. people in the space, they start to block the markers because right. the, the cameras need line of sight to right. the markers in order to sense where they are. Um, yeah. And it just becomes really messy to analyse. Fair enough. Um, so we tried it just yeah. with just with pairs, yeah. um, and it, it seems to work at that level. Yeah. Um, Another nerdy question: Did did each pair go through the different conditions, or was it just the one condition per, per pair? Yeah, it was a within subjects design. Okay. So every every subject, um, well, we treated pairs as a subject. So yeah. every pair did every condition. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah. in randomized order, oh. so okay. to. Yeah. to, to counterbalance any kind of order, order effects yeah. that you yeah. might get. And, and how, how many people did you have involved with that as participants? Um, I think, what, there were 21 pairs. Okay. Um, yeah. That's a good sample. So yeah. it's, it's 
not too bad. Yeah. yeah. Um, most mostly students from the university. Um, yeah. If I had more people, it would be really interesting to look at you know some more cultural effects and things because a lot of them are international students. Okay. And, um, uh, but then we had a lot of Finnish students as well. Mm-hmm. Be interesting to compare those if we had more. Yeah. Um, obviously, more you, get, you do get cultural differences. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of how willing people are to take part in a dance <laughs> task in a, in a room with just two people. Yeah. Um, it's a yeah. bit of a weird disco, isn't it? It is. It's a bit of a <laughs> yeah. strange disco. We, we, did, we did have some really nice lighting, though. Oh, um, nice. Yeah. 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 So you've got, like, the strobe lights going on, things like that. Yep, yep. yep. And there's disco ball as well. So, um, <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so we tried to recreate the, the atmosphere. Um, yeah. So many of my participants asked, um, you know, if, we could, if they could have some alcohol beforehand, yeah, actually, uh-huh. which was quite interesting. Okay. Um, I suspect that's a, a cultural thing as well. Yeah. Um, you know, our, our idea that you like you have a drink and then you go out dancing mm-hmm. it's like a, a, an association that we have um so yeah a uh, lowering the inhibitions as well yeah yeah so yeah for some people <laughs> yeah no I, I don't know many people that go out dancing um before drinking um i have done it <laughs> once and it was the best time ever loved it so i, yeah. I do recommend not drinking before dancing it's good fun um, i usually yeah. do i think it's great yeah yeah, so. yeah it's fun <laughs> Um, I love getting the dance floor started at nightclubs while yeah. everyone else is still... Yeah, yeah still, still <laughs> like trying to get over that awkwardness. Yeah. Um, yeah. So did the people that you paired up, I'm guessing they didn't know each other beforehand? Actually, most of them did know each other. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, um, yeah. So and, how did you, I, I guess, how did you measure that they're becoming better friends or, yeah? Yeah. So, th- I mean, this is a, a real challenge, Um and we we debated a lot, like mm-hmm. how how to best control for you know whether people knew each other. Yeah. We decided that it was best if just everybody kind of knew each other. You know, so it sort of made sure that they were acquaintances at least beforehand, yeah. um, so that we didn't have some people who did know each other before and some people who, for whom this was their first meeting. Um, uh, so I, I think it's quite impressive that we still found this difference, yeah. even though everyone did already know each other. Um, uh, I'm I'm pleased to say that we didn't actually break any friendships like because of the <laughs> oh, task. Oh, that's good. Yeah, because um, that would have been awful if yeah. you know we'd reported afterwards that you know they'd never speak to each other again yeah. after dancing and like you have no sense of rhythm. I can't like, dance with you. I don't want to be your later. friend anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but we, we didn't we didn't ask kind of directly. You know, like how much you like this person. We asked about how much they liked the interaction with this person um, and how much they enjoyed working with them at this at this moment. Um, so we didn't sort of ask directly, like how close they felt. Um, which you know, if we're going to do it again, it'd be really nice to pair up like people who'd never met each other mm-hmm. before and see how quickly you can make a friendship out of this. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, to, I should say, and it wasn't for this study, but it was for a, a slightly different study where we were looking at. Um, uh, like two violinists who had to play um, play a duet together, mm-hmm. um, and the the object of that study was not to look at social bonding outcomes. Uh, it was just to look at you know basic sort of motor coordination between two violinists uh, in the motion capture lab. Um, but uh, two of two of our participants from that study just recently got married, oh. <laughs> and they did meet in the lab. Um, so, oh, that's well, exciting! So there's some nice anecdotal evidence yeah. for you. Make sure you document that for any um, ethics applications in the future. Yeah, about harm and beneficence. But, but, and but we also know that um, you know married partners also have better health outcomes. That's so true. you know, yeah. there's that. True. Yeah. <laughs> so, so.
<laughs> sort of unintended outcome, perhaps. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, maybe there's something in there. That's yeah. right. You, you, can, you can meet a partner while playing music together. <laughs> that could have its own health benefits. Yeah, there's a TV show in there. Definitely. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. yeah. Look, move over the bachelor. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> come take part in my violin study. The violinist. Yeah. Um, okay, so that that's your your master's research. That was my master's. Yeah. yeah. So now you're doing your doctorate. Yeah. And what's your doctorate on? Um, so my, my doctorate is, uh, unfortunately, I feel like it's a bit less interesting because it doesn't oh, involve okay. silent discos. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So what I'm interested in is drilling down into this synchrony bonding effect, trying to understand, like, why we like synchronized sim- stimuli. Um, and we, we, have a, we have a kind of theory that maybe it's because uh, synchronized stimuli are easier to process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, we perceive things that are moving together as being part of the same group, um, we kind of process that group as just one thing rather than two things. Like it, it just kind of gives you less to attend to, right? Yeah. <laughs> like if you've got kind of two objects that are moving out of time with each other, then you have to pay attention to both of them or like actively try and filter one of them out. Whereas if they're moving together, you're like, oh, great, that's one object. I, I know how to deal with that. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of suspect that maybe this could happen between ourselves and others. Right. Like if, if someone else is kind of moving the same way we're moving, we see that and go like, oh, they're kind of like they're doing what I'm doing you know, maybe they're kind of part of me or something. And, you know, that, that sounds kind of weird, but you do get this, you know, sort of subjective experience at least. And you can talk to people when you, you know, when you're kind of improvising dance with someone else and it's going really well, you do start to feel that you're kind of moving as one body. Um, and the the barrier between yourself and the other seems to blur a little bit. Um, and, you know, sometimes you even get to the point where, you're not even sure like who's kind of initiating the action. Mm. Um, so one one way we demonstrate this um, sometimes is through a mirror game where you you get people to um uh, to like lead uh, a movement just by like raising and lowering a hand, and the other person kind of mirrors that and raises their hand, uh, and then you get them to like swap who's leading and following, um, and then you can do it where where you ask them to be to to kind of swap who's leading and following just whenever they want, but without talking about it. So, you know, you just kind of decide in the moment that I'm going to start leading now and that the other person should follow me and vice versa. Uh, and you, you can get this moment where there's this total self-other overlap and you, you aren't really sure who's leading in that moment, but you're still kind of moving together. And so that's a really interesting experience where you're getting this blurring of self and other. Um, so that's what we're trying to understand more. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the, the study I did do just previously was looking at um, people perceiving... Uh, stimuli that were either in or out of time with each other. Uh, so they weren't moving themselves. They were just watching um, some stimuli moving. Um, non-social stimuli, they were just dots on a screen. Yeah. They, they weren't images That's of people. That's a very like classic psychology experiment. I remember like as an undergrad because um, at UWA as an undergrad you have to do a bunch of psychology experiments for mm. other PhD students. I've done a bunch of them where you're like watching a dot blink or something like that. It's yeah. very... Classic. Yes, that kind of thing, yeah, basic <laughs> yeah. perception psychology. Um, and we're just interested in people's reaction time in categorizing these uh, and whether it differed depending on whether they were in or out of sync with each other, uh, suspecting that if they're out of sync, it should take longer because more processing is involved. Yeah. Um, and the study that I'm, I'm running now, um, I shouldn't say too much about, I guess, because mm-hmm. I might, you know, some of my participants might uh, might, yeah. might be listening. <laughs> yeah. uh, if there's any undergrad psych students, um, <laughs> take part in my experiment. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's a it's a drumming task where people are, are doing a, a kind of visual attention task while also drumming along to a beat. Um, oh, okay. 
Um, but yeah, so I've got, I've got a range of these kind of really quite basic psychology, you know, perception studies um, where there's synchrony or non-synchrony involved and then looking at processing load in some way. Yeah, interesting. Now, something that came up just before, you mentioned one of your supervisors or former supervisors was involved with an icebreaker effect type study. Yeah, there's right? a, uh, someone else in, in my lab, uh, yeah. formerly in my lab, actually. Now now okay. she's at um, uh, UCL, uh, University College London, okay. um, uh, coordinating a loneliness project. Right. Um, and it's a public health mm. you know, level yeah. of things. But yeah. So I mean, do, are you able to talk to the, the icebreaker project at all? Do you know uh, much about it or...? It's not really my project, but uh, <laughs> a little bit. Why is it, yeah. Do you have a particular question? No, I was just interested. <laughs> I, uh, I was reading about it online just in preparation for this podcast. Courtney sent me some a couple of links through, and I saw the term semi-naturalistic study mm, come yes. up, and I was wondering yeah. if you might be able to tell me what that is. Mm. Sure. Um, yeah, I guess there's obviously different like levels of you know ecological validity, I guess, you can talk about. So the, the kind of psychology you know perception stuff that, that I'm doing now is like, Minimal ecological validity, I guess. You know, it's very much lab-based conditions where you control as many of the variables as possible, um, as opposed to like a totally naturalistic study where you'd just be kind of out in the wilds. Well, observational, um, almost. Observation, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, actually, my um, one of my supervisors, Bronwyn Tarr, uh, was involved with a study recently where they were going to nightclubs and just like taking notes on like how long people were dancing together in pairs. Can you um, imagine which is as super creepy. Yeah. Can you imagine like being at the club where someone's just watching you and taking notes like, oh my gosh. I think, I think they did it discreetly and yeah, like, they had yeah. ethics approval for They'd it. Have things, to, like, but, yeah. This goes without saying perhaps. But um yeah, so that that would be like you know more down the naturalistic end of the spectrum. Um I think the, stu- the studies that um, that uh, Ellie Pierce was running, the icebreaker effect, um, were were kind of, I guess, yeah, semi naturalistic in in that you know these these were kind of you know na- natural you know art- arts based groups, mm-hmm. um, but they were organised for the purpose of the research. So they you know they could control some things and could control you know who was involved with it and they knew okay. they knew who the the participant pool was and things yeah um uh i i think i think most of these groups were organized like for the purposes of the study and were not kind of things that were just already running incidentally yeah um that you know she just happened to observe okay um, and it also looked it looked at singing as well didn't it mm-hmm. C- compared to other forms of social engagement or yeah so compared to different kind of art, arts based activities right. yeah um, yeah. And it was the singing group that seemed to have this icebreaker effect, as she yeah. termed it. Yeah, um, interesting. Uh, and yeah, crucially, the singing was the one that involved the most kind of synchrony. Um, uh, I think it would, would be really interesting to to run that again, but look at um, you know maybe a, a rowing group or something, mm-hmm. or some other task that involved joint synchrony yep. um, as well as singing, and compare mm-hmm. those because um, mm. I, I don't think she included. Like any other synchronized tasks, to see whether it's music that's the that kind of causes that effect, or whether it's anything that's done in time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's really interesting doing those kinds of semi naturalistic studies. It's just really hard to find good control groups. Yeah. Um, mm. Like you know, how, how do you? It's it's the same for kind of any music therapy or you know community music based intervention that you're trying to test. Coming up with control groups for music is really difficult because mm. you know it's like okay, we we give someone like this musical intervention and they take part in a drumming group or they take some singing lessons or whatever the intervention is, but then you need a control if it's going to be a proper scientific study you need to get like another group 
that's doing something similar to that, but not that. Um, right. You know, and and that's where it's quite difficult to pick. Like, what what is what's something that's kind of like a singing lesson, but just without all the musical elements of it. Maths uh, lessons. That, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, is, is that really yeah. the same? I, no. You know, because, but... <laughs> like, singing is a bit more physical. You're probably yeah. standing up during it, whereas you might be sitting during a maths class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're using you're using your lungs. You know, maybe yeah. there's something about like. You know, singers do have a pretty good lung capacity through all the exercising the lungs. So maybe you could have like a you know a sort of yoga breathing session where mm-hmm. you're just practicing breathing while standing up, but without the singing and without any music. Maybe that would work. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot a lot of people who do this kinds of sort of music and health research agonize over how <laughs> to how to find you know comparison groups mm-hmm. with which to compare their musical groups. Um, yeah. So that's a real challenge. I can imagine. I mean, it's hard enough in health research to. Get comparators, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So and compare apples with apples, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Very difficult. Um, even harder when you're, you're trying to think like, well, what what are the kind of active components of the music as well? Because you can mm-hmm. get music that doesn't really have any synchrony. I guess mm-hmm. um, it's uncommon, but you know, you could you could kind of sing to pitches with no rhythmic organization yeah. or something. The other yeah. thing um, I could think of is maybe like whale songs. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. yeah, that I don't think that has like it's still music. But the synchrony isn't there. Mm. It's different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so actually one of the um, – a study I was assisting on um, last year, we were using sort of nature sounds mm. uh, as a comparison for music in a listening task. Yeah, okay. Um, so yeah, that it's definitely – you know, it's, just, it's like sounds of waterfalls and birdsong and stuff mm, um, okay. as opposed to, you know, humanly generated music. Um, um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um Okay, so with the the synchrony that you're looking at, if you find that it does take less processing power to figure out whether something's in time or not, I guess what are the overall like implications of this kind of information? Um, I mean, it gives. <laughs> <laughs> that was my stomach. <laughs> so it's, a, it's a recurring thing that's happened in these podcasts. We, these mics are set up to filter that stuff out, yeah. so you're fine. Yeah, right, but they've yeah. announced it to the audience, so we all know. That's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. I mean, what what it does, um, I guess, it, it tells us more about like the mechanisms behind this. Um, so, I mean, there's there's not like necessarily a kind of real application immediately from knowing like all oh, the synchrony is important, except that it tells you that like all well, synchronized activities might be important, mm-hmm. um, uh, which, you know, includes music and dance, but also other kind of synchronized activities. Um, but it's, it's really just trying to understand the process and the mechanisms behind it, um, which I, I think is, you know, if you're going to make an argument for, you know, including music-based interventions as part of, you know, a, a public health policy, um, then it's important to understand what those mechanisms are and, like, why this works. Um, so it is kind of basic research to understand, well, why does this work, which does sound just, like, academically interesting but not necessarily, <laughs> you know, useful in and of itself, except that it helps to build that argument. Um, and, you know, there is a bit of a battle um, in policy decisions about whether there's value in, you know, teaching music at schools, uh, whether there's a value in funding, you know, music therapy training and, you know, music therapy sessions. Um, so I think, you know, it just helps to kind of create that picture and build up that argument to say, yes, there really is something here. Like doing, you know, taking part in these activities does seem to do something for people's brains and it has these social effects. Um, therefore, you know, maybe it is important that we look into this as a real intervention. Um, just as you, you know, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't kind of 
like develop a drug and expect people to take it without understanding, you know, what it does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, someone needs to understand what the process is and build up that mechanistic argument. Yeah. And I guess that segues nicely, that idea of social connectedness segues nicely into something that's sort of come up uh, fleetingly already in our discussion, and that's the loneliness. And I know the National Health Service in the UK has got a, a policy around loneliness, haven't they? Yeah. Do, do you know a bit more about that? Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're taking loneliness quite seriously. And as I mentioned, they have a minister for it now, mm. which is, you know. Um, and so my, my colleague, Ellie Pierce, uh, who did the icebreaker effect study, um, she is coordinating um, a sort of multi-site research project, I guess, looking at loneliness. Um, they have a, a loneliness network um, operating between many universities in the UK, looking at all sorts of interventions to improve social connectedness, mm-hmm. uh, as well as looking at, you know, what what leads to sort of social disconnected. And right. um, you know who's most at risk to this? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there is. There's definitely a lot of movement, particularly in the UK at the moment, around mm-hmm. combating loneliness as a sort of public health issue. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great, uh, and that sort of ties in with an earlier podcast episode. And I think you were mentioning before we started recording that you that you know Professor Joe Badcock who was a previous guest on the podcast. So if anyone's interested, go back and have a look at our, <laughs> our past episodes. Um, she's done quite a bit of work on loneliness, uh, particularly around people with certain types of mental illness. Um, but, yeah, it's it's interesting. I'd be interested to see. I know that there's been a, a loneliness commission set up, and I think there was a politician who unfortunately got assassinated, Joe Cox, I think her name was, who they've named that commission after, I believe, um, who was very uh, sort of a big advocate on, in this area. Um but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think that was just before I moved to the UK. I think, but yeah, yeah it's a yeah tragic time in politics yeah. in Britain. Um, it was all around Brexit and immigration and and those sorts of things. That's you know, yeah, you know, that's another conversation. But, <laughs> it, but yeah. it is really yeah. But it's yeah. You know, she was a great um, champion of people who who maybe weren't doing so well and needed a bit of extra assistance and that sort of thing. And, Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's been a very interesting time to move to the UK, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've got a society where there is, does seem to be a lot of social disconnect, and it's definitely yeah. a conversation for another time, but there's, yeah. it's quite fragmented in many ways, um, as many Western democracies seem to be at yes. the moment. And it was, um, it was happening pre-COVID anyway. There was a big, there was big division of opinion about things like Brexit um, and the sort of them and us argument. Uh, and then obviously it's been exacerbated now that people have to get locked down in certain cities and can't travel absolutely you know, and yeah. visit people and that sort of thing yeah. yeah i think anything that helps to kind of bridge divides between groups of people um is definitely something we should be looking into yeah i know this this idea came up in in barcelona of all places during covid because they had a really hard lockdown where people couldn't leave their apartments and many people live in apartments there i'd say most people do and i think it was uh, one of the uh, they call them barrios, but it's one of the sort of neighbourhoods in Barcelona. Had some a, a certain time every day, they had someone come out and lead people in a dance. So right. they're out in their balconies, yep. mm-hmm. and there was you know because mo- most of the apartment complexes are designed to have a kind of common courtyard in the middle, and so people, someone was in the common courtyard leading this dance for everyone to come out at a certain time and playing Standing. music and whatnot. Yeah, actually, I have to say, like it's it's also a really interesting time right now to be studying social behaviour and music. Mm. Um, because, you know, co- coronavirus has posed some very interesting challenges for mm. musicians. I think we were saying just before that, you know, there's debates that are happening in the UK, particularly um, around, you know, whether singing is safe to do in public um, or whether it's a super spreader. Mm-hmm. I think that, the you know, there's dubious evidence um, yeah. a- around that. Around, sorry, yeah, that's right. Background noises. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
yeah. yeah, there's you know there's fairly dubious evidence, but I, I think the the more recent studies suggest that actually you know singing is probably no worse than just kind of speaking emphatically in a small room with people, um, yeah. and that you know probably doesn't you don't need any extra um, yeah. you know, limitations on it really. Um, yeah. But you know you you are seeing a lot of people adapting to our new online existence um, yeah. in their musical behaviour. Yeah. You know, there's obviously a lot of these community choir groups and mm-hmm. community drum circles, and you know people who go out dancing. They haven't been able to do these things. Yeah. Um, you know during lockdowns, which are still it seems kind of weird in Perth, where like we've kind of opened up and everything seems back to yeah. normal almost. We but seemed, we but, seem to have missed it. Yeah. Yeah. You know we've we've been fortunate. Um, yeah in our isolation here. Um, but yeah, for many parts of the world, like musical activity is not back to normal. Yeah. Um, and, you know, choirs are still not able to meet in person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of musicians sort of taking their activities online. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, one, of, one of my kind of side projects during this time, uh, working with Niels Christian Hansen, uh, who's based in Denmark, uh, and and a sort of group of others is um, collating a database of uh, online musical activity. Uh, <laughs> so we have a collection of of, sort of mostly YouTube videos and Facebook streams and things, um, you know, just kind of documenting the sorts of online musical performances that people have been doing, okay. uh, along with some news articles describing this. And yeah, a lot of a lot of these there was a real wave of like balcony singing that mm-hmm. happened mostly in Italy, but also in some other parts of Europe, mm-hmm. where people would be kind of singing on their balconies mm-hmm. because there was a way that they could like sing with other people while still being in their own home. Yeah. Um, and similar to your, to your Spanish example of you know yeah. someone leading dance down in a public square. Yeah. Um, so we're getting things like that have started to happen, which is really interesting. That you know yeah. when people are feeling disconnected, they start turning to to things like this. Yeah. Um, and then you know you have you have choirs that have kind of made these multi-track recordings where everyone kind of records their bit at home, right? Um, and then you stitch it together afterwards in editing, so mm-hmm. it appears like there's a choir singing together, mm. whereas actually people have been just you know singing by themselves along with a, a sort of accompaniment track. Yeah. Um, I, I still sing with a choir in Oxford, the St Peter's College uh, choir, okay. um, and was just doing my my recording this morning for one of those types of projects. Okay. Um, which is it's an interesting process, though, because you're you're kind of singing with everyone else, yep. um, I guess, but you're not there in the moment. No, and um, I think there'd be some interesting research to look at, you know, what kinds of social bonding effects you get out of that. Yeah, and just the acoustics of people mm. being in a shared space versus, you know, multiple individual spaces all sounding slightly different. Obviously, there's you know digital reverberation and whatnot you can insert after the fact, but. Um, yeah, we'd be interested to see if people found that more pleasing or less pleasing to listen to, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah it really would. So, yeah. so anyway, it's, it's sort of early days with that, but we're, we're collecting lots of videos <laughs> and are still thinking of ways to analyse them and what we, can, what we can look at. Yeah. All right. So it's, it's about time to wrap up, unfortunately, but yeah. um, what's next for you? What's, what, are you, what are you doing over the next six months in order to progress your research, I guess? Oh, that's such an awful question. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what anyone's doing that's in true. the next six months? That is very true. Um, at some point, I should get back to the UK. Um, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I, I am here at UWA as a, as a visiting researcher um, working with Lyndon Miles in the, the psychology department. Um, so I, I, I'm kind of there collecting data for a while uh, and working with that team. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Uh, but as soon as I'm finished with that project, then I'd be looking to head back to the UK. But that's, yeah, it depends a little bit on, you know, travel restrictions mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, how much COVID there is in Oxford at that time <laughs> and whether I want to go back. Because yep. uh, <laughs> yeah. things are pretty good here. And I have to say the incentives to return to the UK right now are not really there. Um, yeah. I hope my supervisor's not listening. I'd love to get back, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Well, yeah. thanks very much for your time today, Josh. It's been great yeah, chatting. You. Thank and, you. Uh, hopefully people listening f- have found this equally interesting. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I um, hope so. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah. It's been Thank really fun. <laughs> so there you have it, Courtney, our chat with Josh Bamford. Yeah, he was actually pretty fun to talk to. I thought that was quite a good conversation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I certainly learnt a lot. I really yeah. liked the... um silent disco like the idea of doing that in research just it's so interesting and kind of weird i like it yeah and as josh was saying he's he saw that for the first time at the fringe festival in perth yeah i think it pro- i probably saw that for the first time about three or four years ago i saw people dancing with headphones on and you're like what the hell yeah um <laughs> And it was, it's always usually in an area where there's a bar. So I imagine that people who are having something to drink might be looking at that increasingly mm-hmm. scratching their heads saying, what's going on here? Definitely, yeah. Um, but the fact that you can get like research ideas from when you're out drinking or, or dancing and go, hang on, I wonder how this works. It's just, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, his research, although it's in, it's almost in like the basic science kind of field, Um I feel like there's lots of really interesting concepts that he's yeah. brought up. And, I, yeah. and I think that's where it all starts. And once they've got more findings, they might be able to apply that and do experiments in yeah. real-world situations. And to improve see. like music therapy and things like that. Because, yeah, yeah they're, they're definitely things that are around um, and can already help people. So, yeah, understanding the mechanisms sounds yeah. like a good idea. Yeah, music's all around us anyway. So if we can use it to our advantage, then... We should. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, all right. Uh, how can people get in touch with us, Courtney? Oh, you ask me this question every time and I really should uh, like have it written down or something, but you can contact us on Twitter, which our handle is... At health means what? Yes, excellent. I totally knew that. And then we also have our um, email that you can send us feedback or ideas, uh, which is meaningofhealth at outlook.com. So, yeah, contact us if you've got any ideas or people you'd like us to interview or topics or things like that, then, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And even if you just want to have a a bit of a whinge and a moan about something we've done or said, (laughs) that's fine too. That's right. You can tell us we're wrong. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks very much, Courtney. Thanks, Greg. And thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll speak to you soon. Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. <laughs>